Welcome, everybody, to a special edition of the Fireside Chat with Tom Campbell, which we are calling the first youth Fireside Chat since today, just a few days before Christmas. We have several members of the younger generation in our virtual meeting room to ask Tom questions related to his Mavic Toe theory. To introduce the participants, we have Alexander from uh, Sydney in Australia, we have Nicholas from New York, and we have Ash and Will both from Bloomington in the United States. So we will start off with a very short but really deep question from Alexander. Alexander, go ahead. All right, Tom Campbell. So I would like to ask a question. Is our potential growth endless? Is our potential endless? Great and endless, yes. Um, well, in practically speaking, Alexander, it is both of those. It certainly is great and endless from a practical viewpoint. Yes, there is so much to learn, so much that uh, you can accomplish, so much you can be and do that it would be too long a list to make. It's, uh, it is kind of endless, the, the degree to which you can learn and, and grow within this system but not endless in the sense of infinity. Nothing real is infinite. It's always a finite set. So it's not an infinite potential, but it's a large enough potential that it looks infinite from our point of view. So practically speaking, we might think there's infinite potential, but actually there cannot be. But there's more potential than we can imagine here as consciousness. Any Further question, Alexander, or did it clarify your question? That base, Tom Campbell basically just explained that very briefly and very well. Okay, good. Then we'll move on to the next question, which is one from Nicholas. Hi, okay. So um, I have heard people who have had um, a near-death experience describe it as being ultra-real and more real than this reality frame. Can you explain why that is and what makes it more real? Well, yes. Um, when you have this, this experience, actually, out-of-bodies can be that way, too, as well as remote viewing, all sorts of, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, things where you are getting data stream that's not of this physical reality, but some other data stream. The reason that it seems more than real, it seems clearer than real, is you don't have the background information that you have here. When you're looking at things within this reality, there's lots of detail, lots of background detail. Even if you have a person speaking, there's lots of things going on in the, in the background if you're at, in this virtual reality. You know, there's always, you know, if you're in a room, there's always the walls on the room and the colors of the rug and the wallpaper and the light fixtures and the desks, and it goes on and on. There's lots and lots of things there besides. When you are getting a data stream from another reality frame, it doesn't have a rule set as, as detailed and tight as this one. So what you see is basically just those things that are interacting with you. The rest of the background is not there. You don't see all that detail, in which case your focus is entirely 100% on exactly that interaction. And that makes it seem clearer, makes the colors brighter, it makes uh, everything seem more 
more real and sometimes even more alive than it does here. Um, the signal is clearer often. We have more noise in our, in our signal in this reality frame just because there's so much else going on at the same time. So it's a clearer, sharper, simpler signal, and that's why it seems that way. Uh, and it's, it's true not just of NDEs, but it's true of all sorts of uh, uh, connections with other, other reality frames other than this, this virtual reality we call our physical universe. Okay, Ash, you can, um, Nicholas, you can ask your next question already, the one with uh, one ring. Okay. Um, I'm wondering why moving from one virtual reality to another is traveling out of body is so difficult for so many of us, yet it seems so that it should be a simple thing to do. Um, I mean, switching perspectives and focus, yet it is so hard to do at the same time. Well, the reason that it seems so hard is because we have so many beliefs and so much misunderstanding about the nature of reality and how to get around in that reality that we get in our own way. It's really not so hard um, once we get past our beliefs. Like, for instance, people believe that first they go into a meditation state. From meditation state, they get to point consciousness. And as they go through this process of reaching point consciousness, they feel like they need to let go of this reality, which they do, but in their mind, in their belief system, that means that this reality kind of gets foggier and foggier, less and less tenuous, you know, with, with uh, your connection with it. And pretty soon they find themselves outside of this reality, but in a fog. You know, nothing else is really clear. Everything is, is, um, is vague sometimes. And then their whole experience while they're outside of this reality is vague, vaguer even than dreams. So a lot of people initially when they do out-of-bodies, the, ex the experiences aren't crisp and clear and, uh, and really uh, well-defined. They're all kind of vague, in-the-fog kind of things. And that's because we have a belief that to leave this reality, we kind of have to go through the fog. And we have to be in a, a different mental space. Well, you don't really have to be in a different mental space. You only have to be connected to a different data stream. Your mental space should still be clear. And if your mental space is clear, then your pictures and your ability to process the data will be clear. So that's what's going on. That was one of the big uh, aha moments that uh, I had early in my career when I was going to the laboratory with Bob Monroe. I had, had always uh, felt the necessity to, to leave this reality through the fog. Like you get closer and closer to being asleep, almost on the edge of sleep, almost unconscious, and then there you are in another reality frame, but you're only barely conscious. What you need to be is in that other reality frame and totally wide awake. You see, completely um, cognizant of what's going on and what you're doing. And you don't have to be in this almost asleep state. You just have to be in a different data stream. So that's why... When you realize that and then practice it for a few years, you find that you can get into these states and you can s switch data streams in fractions of a second. It's not a big deal. You don't have to meditate first. You don't have to get relaxed. You don't have to let go piece by piece. You can just 
be there. As quickly as you can snap your fingers, you're there. And you can operate there, and you can switch back and forth to different uh, uh, data streams pretty much instantaneously. So what keeps us out is our beliefs, our idea that we're going from a clear space mentally to a foggy space mentally. We're not. We're staying in a clear space mentally and just switching data streams. So we're clear here and clear there. But it feels like when you're clear-headed, it feels like you're still just awake here. You know, and that doesn't feel right. You expect it to have to go through the fog, and it's not the way it is. So you can shift your data stream and still keep your mind just like it is now, perfectly wide awake. And that's, that's a hard thing to do because when we feel like our mind is wide awake, we don't feel like we've done anything or gone anywhere. Oh, we're just still here because we're awake, you see. So then we doubt what we're doing, and then that gets in the way. So that's that's the reason for that. It's um, it's a, a uh, kind of a major a major learning point that you'll have to go through if you're going to uh, get around in the larger consciousness system efficiently. You can you can't do it almost asleep. You have to be wide awake. Thank you. Okay, the next question then is from Ash. You like to ask? Should I? You should. Okay. Um, so we were just wondering if we can change the probable future with our intent, um, which is not feeling, I suppose, wide, widely. Um, and, you know, remote view and all that stuff is just switching data streams. And as you just said, it's super to do because we don't even have to you know, meditate or do any kind of like prerequisite kind of, uh, you know, action for it. We're just there and then we're, we are wherever we want to be. Then the kind of questions that stem from that is why can we not, or maybe not why can we not, but could we use that to kind of gain momentum or not kind of really gain momentum and, you know, just kind I'm gonna go around and heal people, teach people experientially. Like, look, I just healed your broken bone in front of you. All of a sudden, you're gonna tell all of your friends, like, hey, you don't need all these pills, all this hospital stuff is kind of, you know, belief that this guy just healed my leg and then showed me how to do that so they could heal, you know, their friend. And it kind of trickles down. And we were just wondering why, like, it seems that you specifically, which is also everyone, so we have these fantastic capabilities to do whatever we want. Like in one of your videos, I remember you said that uh, you were loading with like Dennis and, and eating vanilla ice or like vanilla cherry ice cream or something like that along those lines. And it just seems to me like the way the world is right now with everyone well, we all know how the world is right now. We can make a big impact and really help people along if we just kind of showed them, you know, experientially. Like, look, you had a broken bone, now you don't. You had this thing, now you don't. So we're kind of wondering, like, why uh, do you choose to do, you know, like, talks explaining the more specific kind of physics of it and 
that stuff instead of just, you know, uh, more like kind of training, quote unquote, training uh, people to be able to do it. And I know it's kind of like, you know, something you train intellectually, it's something you open up to. Once you're opened up to it, it just happens. Is that more kind of along the lines? Okay, I get I ask you I get your question. Uh, the reason is that the point here is to grow up, right? To change who you are, to change yourself at the being level. And mm-hmm. all the things that you're talking about are things that would impact people at the intellectual level. It doesn't actually make them change. Okay, you can do demonstrations for people and say, "Here, watch me demonstrate this. I'll remote view and tell you what's going on." You know someplace uh well that's done you know hundreds of times there's lots of that if you if you google remote viewing you can find lots and lots and lots of remote viewing done under really tight scientific protocols and it's just a matter of wanting to see that it actually can work well there's already plenty of that there but that really doesn't help anybody grow up that doesn't really help anybody become somebody else it makes somebody go oh wow that's neat I wonder how they did that. And if they were part of it, if they were involved in it directly, then it would be an, oh, wow, sure is strange. And that's about as far as they go with it. You see, if they don't do it directly, if they see it on YouTube or they see it in the movies or something, they see other people doing it, some kind of uh, documentary, then they figure that it's been faked and it's not really probably true anyway. So doing demonstrations is just not not very useful as far as helping people grow up. Everybody has to get there on their own out of a desire to become more, a a desire to grow up. So that sort of thing is is really not useful. The second thing is there is a a concept called the psi uncertainty uh, principle, and what that says is that direct demonstrations – that would enable people to manipulate, say, the data in the data cons- in the in the uh, larger conscious system, or to manipulate the remote viewing or idea to to interact and communicate with people mentally as opposed to just physically. That if mm-hmm. people learn to manipulate those things because they saw the demonstration and then they go off and practice uh, learning how to control their minds and so on, that that would not be a good thing. That would not be a, an entropy-lowering thing. That would be an entropy-raising thing because you, had, you would have people who were not grown up enough to have those kinds of skills and abilities, using them for you know, satisfying their egos. So we have both mm-hmm. of those things. It's, demonstrations are really not a good way to help people grow up, and if you did that too much, you'd end up creating a worse place rather than a better place. You don't want people using their their intents to modify future probability in order to uh, manipulate other people. You know, get your boss to give you a raise, get your parents to give you the car keys, uh, get uh, you know your children to do this or do that. Uh, trying to manipulate people one way or another. We'd have massive manipulation going on, and where that goes is a bad place. That's not uh, that's not useful. You have people that will, um, well, in, in coastal African 
societies, it's very common for people there to say, send me money or I will make you ill. See, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a good place to be in. So we really don't want that to, to spread that much. We want people to grow up first. And to do that, they have to actually be interested. They want to, they have to care about growing up and they have to do the work. So that's why the demos is not a, is not a, uh, it's, it's a lot of gee whiz, but it mostly mm-hmm. produces results that are not useful. You know, if I were to do a lot of that, well, it would make a lot of attention. It would make uh, 20% of the people say, oh, wow, look at those things that conscious can do. It would make 80% of the people say, well, they're faking that somehow. And then you would have these people arguing with each other, and it just doesn't go to a good place. So demos is not the, is not the answer. Okay, as a follow-up, so once, would you say that someone has to unlock being able to modify the future probability? Because you said once you can modify future probability, is that something kind of earns or unlocks somehow? I don't get your sense of unlock somehow. I missed a word in there, but yes, we do have the ability to modify future probability. That's just part of the way the system works. Okay. So my so that that right there is the kind of basis which I I kind of think that the, all the things you talk about, all of the things that we can wouldn't people just kind of looked past getting a raise or getting car keys from your parents? We don't need cars do we need to get raises for jobs if we can, you know, modify the future probability so that we're not in these constraints? And these constraints are here to help us grow up. And, you know, like that, you speak of kind of friction, that the rule set creates this friction, which, you know, people realize that they need to grow up. It just seems that if we can all... If we're not even in our bodies and we can all operate where we want to, if everyone was aware of that, wouldn't we just choose to be somewhere or just, you know, live in a way where there isn't any kind of struggle to be struggled? Yes, uh, that, that would be that would be true if we were all grown up, you see, but you're skipping the step of getting from where we are to being grown up. We can't do that in just one giant leap. Yes, if everybody were completely grown and everyone was a very low entropy being, then you're right. We wouldn't have any need for car car keys or anything else like that. Uh, we would have an optimum situation that we lived in. But everybody isn't mm-hmm. that way. Everybody, uh, most everybody is full of fear, full of ego, full of beliefs. And if they got a little understanding and ability to manipulate other people, uh, they would use it because of their egos. They would use it to make themselves better and take advantage of other people. That's the way they use it. So we can't skip that big step of getting there. You know, we are, we're fearful people, and we have to get there kind of one at a time by growing ourselves up, and that's not a quick process. Not a quick process. That will take us a long time to do that. But, yes, once we get there, 
if the majority of the people on our planet, the majority of the conscious critters on our planet, are grown up in low entropy, then life would be very smooth. It would be very nice, and everybody would get along really well. Everything would be helpful. Everybody would maximize their potential. You see, whatever it is you wanted to do, the system would want to help you do that. You want to be a brain surgeon. You want to be a race car driver. You want to be whatever. You can do all of those because the system would be trying to optimize your experience, and so would others. Mm -hmm. So everybody would be kind of helping everybody else be and become what they want to be and become. So, yes, that's a nice place, but it's a long, rocky road to get there. And it's not going to be that you explain it to people intellectually. Look, people, all you need to do is, you know, grow up, uh, become love, and here we are living in a nice place. And they get it, and they go, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. I'm love now. Well, it doesn't work like that. You're not love now. That growing up process is a, is a long, hard process for people of getting rid of their fear. It's not quick, and it's not easy. It's something that uh, a lot of people are going to have to work on a long time. So that's why uh-huh. it, uh, you know, it's that it's that that barrier we have to get through is the problem, and we get through that one person at a time. And telling people at the intellect what it's all about and how it could be doesn't help them grow up any. That's all intellectual. It doesn't change them at the being level. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, then we move on to the next question from Nicholas. Okay, so if I focus and concentrate on healing someone uh, or myself um, and it doesn't work, does that mean that I'm doing something wrong or is something not good enough or um, or am I just not good enough? And um, also, has there ever been studies or tests um, on the brain uh, function or brain waves while someone has been healing or remote viewing to see if there is uh, physical changes in the brain? Um. Okay, both of those questions, uh, the answer is yes, but let me go explain them. Um, if you try to heal somebody and it doesn't work, there could be multiple reasons why that's the case. It could be that you're just not doing it well enough. That's possible. And that could mean one of several things. It could mean that you're not focused well enough. It could be that you still have a lot of noise in your, in your uh, mind. You're not really staying, you know, on target, very clear. You're still processing other things. It could be that um, your intent is born out of uh, your your ego or out of fear. And in that case, that's kind of high entropy stuff that would keep your intent from, from uh, being very powerful. But it also could be that it's not your technique at all. It could be that that illness that you're trying to heal is on someone's path of learning. We learn from our sicknesses. We learn, we learn from our challenges, and sometimes those challenges are health challenges. And if it's something we've created, so we've created an issue, and that issue now is manifested in some sort of physical problem, then that's ours to deal with. And if you take that physical problem away, then you fall into the category of being an enabler. You're enabling bad behavior because you're taking away the consequences of the bad behavior, you see. So if people are ill because that's part of their growth process, they need that illness in order to to, uh, grow up, 
then you won't take it away. And if you're very powerful, you can take it away anyway. You can override that and take it away, but it'll just be put right back. So that's the case where you do your healing and you expect that it'll work. You think it should work, but it seems to not work for very long. As soon as you let it go, it goes right back to the way it was. And if you, the more you try, you know, you find out it just seems to be that uh, even though you're successful at the healing, it returns, the illness returns. That is likely, then, if you are good at what you're doing, that's likely it's just not meant for you to heal that. Now, the other reason is that the people themselves often put energy into their own illness for various reasons. Now, that sounds silly, counter, counterintuitive that somebody would put energy into an illness. But a lot of times, illness is used as an excuse. It's used as a reason why you can't accomplish something. It can be uh, a way of getting uh, attention. It can be a way of getting sympathy. And people will put energy into being ill. And a person is more effective in manipulating their own energy than, than you will probably be at manipulating it. So if what they want, if that illness is, is part of their thing they're doing, then it's going to be hard for you to undo that because they'll keep putting it back. Now, as far as yourself goes, to make sure you're doing it right, it's just practice. Practice. Get into those states. Heal people. See what difference it makes. You have to do this hundreds of times. You have to have people that, that you start off with, you don't know what's wrong with them. You do the diagnosis. After the diagnosis, then you heal. Then you get feedback as to whether or not something changed. If something changed, don't necessarily jump to the conclusion it was because you healed them. It may have just changed anyway. That's why you have to do it hundreds of times until you actually understand that you are the cause. You're being causal. You can, you can affect that health. So you keep working at it until you get good at it. Generally, people aren't good at it immediately. But eh, six months, a year, two years, you ought to be fairly good at it in that amount of time if you can get into a good meditation state and hold it where your mind is, is clear and focused. Um, the intent you put on it also will do more good in healing if you keep that intent there over a long period of time. If you just go one time and say, okay, heal all this stuff, and you get rid of the black spots, and you make everything nice and white and good, and then that's it, you're done, well, that's not likely to have a real big effect. You need to do that and keep doing that, and if you revisit it six or seven times a day, even if it's only for a minute, which is why it's handy to be able to get into these states and out of them in seconds. Even if you only do it a minute, then keep doing it because every little bit helps. It's all additive. So if you do it 10 times, then you'll probably be 10 times more effective than if you just do it once. So it's a thing you have to keep working at. And the better you get at focus and clarity, then the more power you bring to the situation and the sooner you get results. But in the beginning, when you're learning, I encourage people to keep working at a, you know, at a case, at a healing, often, because then they'll more likely to get results. And when they get positive results, that gives them encouragement. Then they try harder, and it all just builds on itself. So that was the first question. And what was the second? I've, I've forgotten that now. It was so long ago. Have there been, like, any tests uh, done on oh, yes. function? Yes, they have looked at people who meditate and who 
do various things. And I looked at their EEG, which is basically uh, energy spectrum by frequency of brain waves. Your brain is constantly putting out a bunch of electromagnetic radiation at various frequencies. These are called brain waves. And what we are in now is what's called a beta brain wave. That's when you're kind of awake and active and doing things. And that's in the, that's in the higher frequencies in around 40, you know, 50 hertz, that sort of thing. Uh, then you relax, you go down to an alpha state. That's more like around 20 hertz. That's the chilled out uh, relaxation state. The next one down is a theta state, and that's very relaxed. That's generally where the brain energy goes just before you fall asleep. Then the next one down is delta, and that's when you're completely asleep, unconscious. So that's just kind of a real brief breakout of those frequencies. What they find when people are in a meditation state, that more of their energy is in the theta state. Now, if someone put an EEG on your head right now, they'd find some energy in all of those frequencies. There'd be a little bit of energy in delta, a little bit in theta, you know, a little bit in alpha. More of it would be in beta because that's what you're doing now is that kind of thing. And some of it would be scattered in other frequencies. So your energy scattered in all of these frequencies all of the time, but the predominance of it, most of it right now will probably be in beta. When you're meditating... Most of it is going to be in alpha when you're beginning your meditation, but when you get better at it, it'll be in theta. And what they find out is the people who are good at remote viewing and healing, their EEG, the energy spectrum, the theta peaks start to grow and all the other, all the other peaks start to decrease. So the energy um, that they're outputting, electromagnetic energy they're outputting from their brain starts to all uh, move to the theta region. That's what they that's what they have uh, discovered. Now, at that region, there's some other physiological things that go on, too. Your heart rate slows down. Um, your heart rate um, will probably drop from, you know, 60 beats a minute down to around 50, 45. Your blood pressure goes down. Your body actually feels warm. Uh, sometimes it gets, it gets more warm than you'd, than you'd like it to be. Your galvanic skin response, which is basically the electrical resistance of your skin, that goes up. You get more, resist, more resistance in your skin. So all of those physiological things happen when you get your brainwave predominantly in a theta state, which means, or if you get into a good meditation state where you can remote view or heal. Thank you. Okay, then we will move on to the next question, which is one from Alexander. I would like to ask a question. Could a individual unit of consciousness, if it can build up, then can it potentially end? It's a lot like the other question. Okay, you're saying can a uh, individual unit of consciousness die? Could an individual unit of, units of consciousness terminate? Is that what you're asking? Basically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not easily. Uh, your individuated unit of consciousness is pretty much uh, goes on and on and on. It pretty much is going to, to be uh, um, eternal because it's constantly growing and trying to lower its entropy, and it goes through lifetime after lifetime. But remember, this is a digital information system. 
And we all know that in digital information systems, you can delete things. You can uh, erase things. Uh, you can take all the bits and remove the information from them. You know, deorder them, if you will, make them random. So that's a possibility. And I suspect that if you, as an individual unit of consciousness, were so counterproductive to the system, that might happen. That you could be deleted. But I would think that would be the rarest of most rare things that would ever happen. So not to worry about that. Even those people who are failing miserably to understand that they're here to become love, they still have an opportunity. They still have the potential to turn around. They have the potential to do better. And as long as you have the potential to do better, then you are in the game and you're going to stay in the game and uh, you will go on from life to life to life as long as that potential in you to do better exists. So you don't have to be a star to uh, you know, be safe, as you will, uh, as you might think of in, in this reality. Uh, you're safe enough. You'd have to be uh, so dysfunctional that I couldn't even imagine that because I know lots of dysfunction, dysfunctional entities and they just keep on going. That's doesn't a problem. They never, they never get deleted. Now, sometimes you may get pulled out of a particular virtual reality frame, or you may not be allowed to go into a particular virtual reality frame. So you might be um, denied permission, and you might say you get deleted from that frame, but that's really not the right words. It's just like you don't have, uh, like you don't have a password and a username to get into the to get into a particular virtual reality. So you just can't go there. Now, that can happen sometimes. There are limitations can be put on you, but that's not the same as actually being terminated. So I'd say the termination thing is theoretical, more theoretical than it is um, likely, than it is practical. So not something to worry about. It, uh, everybody has potential. Everybody can grow up. Everybody can do better than they're doing, and that's all it takes is just potential. And the system will just give you all the chances and all the time you need. Okay. Then the next question comes again from Nicholas. Okay. So in this reality frame, we have to procreate to... Um, further our species. Does it look like that in other reality frames? Do they need to like procreate uh, and have children to further their species? The ones that are, yes, it does. In the ones that are uh, tight rule set virtual realities like ours. Okay, so in that case, they've that's been created the same way our virtual reality was created. It was given initial conditions and a rule set, and it's just evolving. And that's the way evolution takes it. That's the path on which evolution uh, goes. Now, in other virtual reality systems where they don't have tight rule sets, then no, that's not the case. There isn't that same sort of um, um, tight causality between events because the rule set is a very loose rule set. So when you get in... in um, some virtual realities, it isn't like that at all. And people don't necessarily have to eat. You know, everybody doesn't break for dinner and for lunch. You know, things just happen. And there isn't 
that sort of a of a uh, requirement. So the sexuality, the the hunger, the eating, uh, those things are all particular to a very tight rule set virtual reality that's evolved, much as ours has. It's not uh, necessarily common to virtual reality in general. Okay, and um, so that means there are other uh, other reality frames where basically anything is possible. Yes, there's other reality frames where basically anything is possible. There's reality frames where the normal way to get around is teleporting. There's reality frames where you know there is no gravity, that sort of thing. So that these are though loose loose rule sets, like in your dream reality. In your dream reality, you can teleport from one thing to another. In your dream reality, you can fly. There is no gravity except when you want gravity. When you need gravity, it's there. When you don't, it's not. So yes, that's a loose. That's a much looser rule set. So your dream reality didn't evolve from a uh, a rule set and initial conditions. That's not what it is. It's a totally different kind of thing altogether. It's just a place where we can go interact. It's, a, it's an experiential place where your experience is virtually unlimited into the things you can do. Here in this, this virtual reality we call our physical universe, we're very limited in what we can do. We can't fly. We can't jump too high. We don't run too fast. We can't think that fast either. You know, we're very limited in our, in our things that we can do and our abilities. And that, those limitations produce choices, produce context for our experience. In the dream reality, you don't have near the restrictions that all kinds of things can happen that would seem like crazy sorts of things here. But they happen there because it gives you a much broader experience base there. But you don't have the same feedback. You don't have the same consequences there. You see, so it's not as an effective place to learn in a dream reality, but it's a great place to visit, to do things that otherwise you'd never be able to experience. So it's all these different realities all have a purpose. And then as another follow up, since our reality is not meant for um, doing those things and we are very like limited, does that mean there are like cracks in the reality that lets us like remote view and out of body travel? No, I wouldn't say that there's cracks in it. We're limited, but we're still consciousness. You see, we're limited in what we do here in the physical. So as long as you're in the physical, you can't do but so much. But you are consciousness. You're not your avatar. You're consciousness. And as consciousness, you can explore and interact with all the rest of the consciousness system, which means you can connect to other data streams. You don't have to just interact within this data stream. If you're in this data stream and it, you're in this physical reality, then you have the limitations of the physical reality rule set. But as consciousness, you can go other places, do other things that don't have those limitations. You see? So as consciousness, you've got the, you know, you, you have all it takes to, to uh, go anywhere you like. Go into those databases, go forward into the probable future, go backward into the, into the past. Uh, you can explore all those things, other reality frames. It's all there, but you do that as a consciousness. When you come here and you log back into this game, get this data stream, now as long as you're here, you have to abide by the rules here. If you were to go and get into some other physical reality data stream, there are other physical realities besides ours, 
and you could go and get into their physical reality. If you did, then you would have an avatar in that physical reality game, if you will, and then you have to abide by that rule set, whatever it was. Then you could, but see, you're still consciousness, so you can you can kind of log on to different games. It's like being able to play World of Warcraft and The Sims. You know, you can go from one to the other, but when you log into the game, you have to abide by the rules of that game. So if you log into World of Warcraft and your character falls off a cliff or drowns, well, you have to abide by those rules. That's the way it is. You have to deal with with those limitations of their hit points or whatever else they, they have for uh, rules and limitations. But then you log out and you go over to the Sims and log into that. Now the rule set's totally different. There's different things you can do, different uh, choices available to you. So that's really the way it is with us. We're consciousness. We can log into a lot of different reality systems, or we can just uh, you know, go to databases and that sort of thing. That's our choice as consciousness. So it's not really a, a break in our rule set or something that allows us to get out. We're already out. We're consciousness. We're not trapped in this, rules, in this, uh, in this reality. We just believe we are if we think we're the avatar. Thank you. Okay, and we actually have one more question from Nicholas. Okay. So what do you think of the concept of a heaven and a hell? Um, do you think like people visited different realities and that was the case that we have a hell and that we have a um, heaven? And do you think they really exist? Well, no, not as individual places they don't exist. They exist as concepts. I would think, no, I'm guessing, you know, I don't know exactly what the uh, the uh, anthropologists or other, uh, you know, sociologists or whoever might try to figure this out. But I would guess that you have this concept of the right way to do things. And if you grow up and become love, life is good. There's happiness. There's abundance. There's plenty. You're fulfilled. You're challenged. And that's a really good place. And if you're fearful and high entropy, then everything's a struggle. There's lots of, um, you know, there's lots of problems, lots of issues to deal with. There's, there's constant, uh, you know, warfare and, and uh, greed and that sort of thing. So that's not such a nice place. So you take that basic concept of growing up and becoming love and you get a nice place or, you know, the fear and you've got kind of an awful place to live. Well, if you take those general concepts and try to explain those to somebody who really has no concept of a larger reality, who's only just stuck in this reality, I think they turn into things like heaven and hell. And then they, that turns into dogma, which turns into some very simple, simple idea of, you know, the good place that you'd like to be and grow up to live in and the bad place that you don't want to have to live in. And then that can be used as a fear-based tool to get people to join your organization. You know, join my organization and you'll always be happy and full of, you know, joy and don't do it and you'll be, you know, internal misery, that sort of thing. So it turns into dogma once it gets into religion. So you can think of that, though, as coming from a, from a fundamental place of understanding. 
that there are ways to act and be that produce caring and love and cooperation and, and produce nice environments. And there are ways of being that produce really awful environments and that by our choices, we move toward one of those or the other. You see? So in that way, those concepts are meaningful. But once they get turned into dogma and stylized into a, uh, into religion, they become kind of uh, metaphors, if you will. And then, unfortunately, they also become inducers of fear. And, of course, fear is going in the wrong direction. Fear is a part of the problem, not part of the solution. Thank you. Okay, and then we have one more question from Alexander. Now, Tom, now, now Tom you probably get this uh, probably a lot, or maybe not even, but I would just like to know, when you started to get into this line of work? Well, it took a while. You know, I guess... Well, depends on how I, you know, I could answer that several ways. One answer is I got into it when I was four or five years old. You know, I started out in this line of work uh, at a very, very early age, um, having out-of-body experiences and learning how to control those and, and, and kind of go at, go at will. Uh, but I really wasn't in this line of work then. I was just kind of experiencing the larger consciousness system. Uh, I really wasn't in, in a lot of control of it in, initially. But then, after I was, well, no, while I was still in graduate school, okay, working on advanced degrees in physics, um, I learned to meditate. Now, that was back in the late 1960s. Now, that's probably ancient history to all of you. That was back in the uh, late 60s as I was uh, getting out of graduate school. And I, w I met uh, Bob Monroe in about 1972, 71, 72. Still ancient history among this crowd, I think. And then's when I started taking it more as a job. It was kind of my night job because now I was working at a laboratory trying to study consciousness, trying to study these effects and understand what they were and how they worked. And if, if we take that as really when I started working at it, It would have been when I was, say, 26, 27, 28. Middle to upper 20s is when I got uh, really uh, into it to where it was, a, it was a second career, if you will, and I've been doing it ever since. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but uh, it took me a while. Now, you guys, you see, you're going to start a lot earlier. Here you are much uh, younger than that, and you already are getting interested in it and working on it. So that means you can go a lot farther, a lot faster than I did because you're starting earlier. So that's, uh, that's good. That, def that definitely answers my question amazingly. You always briefly explain something in a very good <laughs> well, way. Well, thank you, Alexander. Okay, any other questions? Because those were all we had on the list, but I hope you have still something in mind to ask. Most definitely. Yeah. Then go ahead, Ash. Uh, this is Noah. He just came, uh, came over and uh, he had a question. 
Um, All right, let's hear it. Don't put me on the spot. Um, would there be a base reality frame? You say you said that all things in in some reality frames, anything can be possible. So that in some reality frames, say that there are, you know, Darth Vader right now. So, something, according to those lines, could be absurd, could be more along uh, what we perceive as real. But is there a base frame of which has to exist in order for other reality frames to exist in the first place? Um, I think I know what you're saying. Uh, the thing that's the base in all of this is the larger conscious system itself. Okay, A virtual reality needs to be computed. So the thing that's common to all of them in its base is the computer. The computer is the larger consciousness system. So that's the fundamental thing at the root of which everything else is built on is, is on this um, uh, digital information system. So that's at the very root. Now, when it goes to making virtual realities, it, if it's going to be a tight virtual reality rule set like ours that makes it this kind of a, of a, uh, a world like our universe, then it has to start with initial conditions and a rule set, and then it evolves to be whatever it evolves to be. But it has to be something that is stable. In other words, the initial conditions and the rule set have to have stability to allow it time to evolve. If, if the initial conditions and rule set would only last 100 years before the whole thing disintegrates, well, that doesn't give it a whole lot of time for evolution, you see. So it has to be something that can go on for a long, long time to allow the iteration that takes place slowly in evolution. There's not a lot of initial conditions and rule sets that can be that stable. So, yes, when you look at the different virtual realities that are tight rule sets like ours, there's a lot of commonality among them. Sometimes there's very different things there as far as forms. You know, they don't look like humans and dogs and horses and cats and that sort of thing. It's different, very different, you know, physical forms. But the basic underlying structure of how, the, of how it works is very, very similar because I think the the uh, the fundamentals of the rule set and initial conditions can't be but you know but so different and still be functional, still last long enough to enable something to evolve on it. That's that's interesting. So yes, there are a lot of similarities between those kind. Now, if you take the the uh, virtual realities that have a very loose rule set, well, almost anything can take place in those. There's very few restrictions, and almost anything does take place. If you can imagine it, it's probably, you know, there. It's, it's a much broader range of things than you have in the ones with tight rule sets. The tight rule set like ours, you, you know, may think that we have a lot of different things here, a lot of different light forms in this universe, but that's only a tiny fraction of the kind of things you'll get in a in a, a, a virtual reality has a very loose rule set because the looser the rule set, the more possibilities there are for different things to uh, be able to exist there. I'm not sure. Did that get your question? I think so. I think so. Um, so with everything that you just told us, 
um, specifically pertaining to the questions like, why are we not in like, you know, healing pods going around the world, healing everyone, you know, spreading it that way. What would you say would be kind of like the thing for us to do now? Would be to go to school, get degrees, would that be more productive than meditating to learn to heal? I know in one video you said that, that when take alone, you're evolving one-dimensionally, or I believe something along that line. And so yeah, I'm just wondering, like, you know, kind of like, can do all this cool stuff? What now? Okay, I get only only a certain percentage of your words. Your audio isn't real clear, but let me guess uh, okay. and try to try to answer your question. Uh, I got some of it. Uh, basically, okay. well, what do we do? What do we do now? You know, what is the what do we what should we be doing now to optimize um, ourselves in this in this reality mm-hmm. frame? Uh, all the things we can do. What what should we focus on? You should focus first on on growing up on becoming love, on making choices for the right reason, to make sure that when you make a choice, it's, it's uh, not to serve your fear, not to serve your ego. Work on getting rid of fear. Work on getting rid of the ego and the beliefs and all those things that constrain you. What you're trying to do when you get rid of fear and beliefs and ego, you're trying to get rid of the constraints, the things that box you in, the things that give you fewer choices. As your choice goes, as your decision space grows, then you have more room for, for growth. And then the rest of it, the, the ability to heal, the ability to access the database and, and uh, travel, that sort of thing, will come very easily once you're grown up. It's difficult before you grow up. And that's because that when you are a high entropy being, it's really hard to keep your mind that focused and that clear for very long. You tend to have a lot of noise in your in your mind and that limits what you do just like we started when we uh, i said when we first started this the reason people have so much trouble getting into these alternate realities is their own beliefs their own attitudes their own uh, lack of understanding their own fear if you get rid of all that fear and ego and belief it's so much easier to do all these things so you can spend hours and hours and hours trying to be good at um, adventures in the larger consciousness system, but if you're not really growing up and changing yourself at the same time, you're not going to get but so far or ever be but so good at it. And it'll tend to be haphazard. You're not in control. It just happens whenever it happens. And you don't really know how to, uh, to um, you don't know how to interpret what you're getting, so you don't learn as much. The whole thing is very inefficient. So first thing is to find your fear and get rid of it. Now, the way you find your fear is you look for something in your feelings that's negative. You find your fear by feeling, when you feel anxious, upset, angry, annoyed, um, mistreated, um, you know, not getting what you feel you deserve, uh, that kind of thing. When, whenever you get any negative feeling, that negative feeling is attached to a fear. And if you can trace it back and be honest with yourself, of what's the root fear there? Why do I feel angry? Well, your first thing will be, oh, I feel angry because he said such and such, or because the teacher gave me a 
you know, a bad grade that I didn't deserve, and that's what makes me angry. But you realize that nobody can make you angry. You have to take responsibility for your choices. You choose to be angry. So if you go a little deeper than that and say, no, I can't blame it on somebody else, you know, what is it in me that makes me angry at this thing? You'll find a fear. See, and that's what you have to get rid of. Now, as you get rid of these fears, then the ego and the beliefs drop away with the fear, and now all of these paranormal things that are the the wow kind of stuff that's fun start to become easy. They're no longer the struggle. They seem to be natural to you. So I'd say, what do you do first? First, work on getting rid of that fear growing up. That's a that's the first key thing that will make everything else work for you. In the meanwhile, while you're doing that, though, you can still be practicing, say, healing others, and you can heal yourself. You can practice uh, your remote viewing and those things, but just practice it with a, you know, lightly. Don't get to where it's so important that you're really trying too hard, because trying too hard will get in the way more than anything else. Trying too hard means that your ego is involved. You want to do it. You need to do it. You need to do it because you want to be successful because you want to experience this or experience that or be able to do these things or have this power, and then that's that's all ego. So you need to let that go. If that's your motivation, then you, you will learn to be able to do it even with that, but you won't be ever, you don't ever be very good at it or very proficient. So work on yourself. That's the That's the key things. And then play with the other stuff while you're working on yourself. But don't take it real seriously. Take it always like a scientist. Just have the experience. I'm going to remote view. I'm going to heal. And I'm going to do this and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. Don't be. Don't have ego invested in it. Don't, it doesn't matter whether you get it right or wrong. You can learn from either one. If I get it wrong and I don't seem to be having an effect, then that means you have to change what you're doing. You need a better you know, a better, more focused state to get into. Then go back and practice your meditation more because that's where the good, clean states come from is being able to hold that meditation state real well. Mm-hmm. And if it does work, then do more of what works. Do less of what doesn't work and have a long view. This is this is like a life's work, not a something you do, you know, over the summer vacation. It's something that you do the rest of your life. So if you have a long-term view, then five or six years from now, You'll be good at it. A decade from now, you may be very good at it. And you also may be a whole lot more grown up in the sense that you've gotten rid of a lot of fear. So if you look at it as something you're going to be doing the rest of your life, and you're going to have fun with it, you're going to experiment with it, you're not going to take yourself too seriously, always be skeptical. Don't believe anything. And uh, always stay skeptical, but open-minded. Anything's possible, but don't believe anything at all. So that's the way you approach life. Don't get your ego wound up in your abilities or your experiences. Um, you know, I say that's how you proceed from here. Try focusing on the growing up part, becoming love, and let the rest of it just kind of fall in however it does. But you don't have to wait to do the rest of it. You can do the healing and the remote viewing. You can do that all, all along. Just do it uh, without ego. Sometimes you'll succeed. That's good. That'll tell you, well, that worked. I'll do more of it like that. Sometimes you won't. It doesn't mean that you didn't do it right. It means that 
Maybe it wasn't supposed to be that way. That's why you got to do it hundreds of times. You can't just uh-huh. do it ten times and then jump to a conclusion. Hundreds of times. Right. Okay, a quick, a super quick follow-up to that. How do you know if you're doing something out of love or out of fear in, like, for example, um, I remember you talking about how you out so that your body, you know, just to keep up with your body. How do you know you're doing that out of love for your body and love for your ability to help others from the fear that you won't be able to move your body? <laughs> this distinguishing in the beginning between uh, your motivation, you're looking at your intent. Is my intent fearful intent or is it not? Is it a loving intent? Sometimes that's hard to tell in the beginning because you have so much fear that it's really hard to separate that out. I can just tell you, just move on, do what you need to do, do what you think is right, do the best you can, and then look at the consequences, look at the results. Mm -hmm. That's basically how you tell. Is it working? Is it going someplace? Are you making progress? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, then you're probably not doing it right. Not being it right. It's not really the doing. You're probably not being it right. If uh, you are making progress and things are working, then keep doing it. So you can't, it's hard to tell in the beginning. Now, the more you grow up, the easier it is to tell. Eventually, it's obvious. You'll know exactly the route from which your motivation and your intent is springing, whether it's fear based or not fear based. So if you, you know, you gave a, an example there. So if you're trying to uh, do an out-of-body and you go into uh, uh, what they call sleep paralysis where you can't move your body, if you have a fearful approach to that, then that won't be helpful if you struggle with mm-hmm. it. Oh, no, you know, I can't move. I'm paralyzed. And then you panic. And, well, then that's a fear, that's a fear response, and that's not going to help you. But if you just let that be and say, okay, you know, my mind still works, even when my body doesn't. So we'll go with that. And you don't get fearful of it, then you can learn something from it. And you'll realize that because if you get body paralysis or you get this paralysis, you know, 10 times in a row, you can look back and say, well, what am I learning from that? And if you panic each time, you're not learning anything from it. It just scares you. If you are dealing with it effectively, then you are learning things from it. It takes courage. When things like that happen, you have to have the courage just to be, to go on and deal with whatever happens. Okay, what if I'm paralyzed? What if that's, what if that's it? What if I'm always going to be paralyzed? What if while I was sleeping, you know, my spine broke in half or something and you work yourself up into a, into a fear thing, then, uh, you see, that, uh, won't ever lead to progress. And eventually you'll know, well, that's the wrong, thing. You just have to say, well, if that's the case, then at least my mind works, so let's see what I can do with it. Uh-huh. Just don't, uh, you don't, you have the courage to, to go on and see what happens and experience it and figure whatever it is, you'll deal with it. Well, thank you. Okay. Alexander, do you have another question? Anything on your mind? At the moment, no. 
But I would just like to thank all of you, and I would also give a very special thanks to Tom Campbell. It was awesome and very exciting being able to meet you. It's been my pleasure to be here, Alexander, and meet with uh, young people. You know, you young people are, uh, are where the action is now. You know, that's it's it's your world to change. So as you uh, get older and uh, take on more and more responsibility, and you come with these concepts already in your mind, that'll make a big difference. It'll make a big difference to all the people you run into. So it's uh, it's good. Very good to have young people involved in in uh, understanding a little bit about the reality that they're in and why they're here, that sort of thing. It's it's terrific. Yeah, when I was uh, your age, um, there w- wasn't many young people who were interested in that sort of thing. It was uh, kids who were interested in that would have been sent to the psychiatrist to see what was wrong with them. So now uh, that's not true. Now it's a real valid, interesting thing to be in to be into that's good okay maybe one question from me Um, a week ago when I talked with Alexander he told me that he tried to talk to his uh, 10 year old classmates about MBT and he wasn't very successful so my question would be do you think that the concepts are too complex to understand at that age no I don't think so I mean these concepts can be very complex You know, if you deal with them, um, you know, too deeply, but if you just talk about the big picture things, just the the things that, um, you know, that that people can relate to, like this would be a better world if we all cooperated. You know, this world runs on cooperation and caring for each other. When When we're all, you know, in fear, then it doesn't work very well. Now, that's something that, you know, that a, even a five-year-old can probably understand. They know about fear and cooperation. <laughs> People have been trying to get them to share their choice now for, uh, you know, for three or four years. So they know about uh, these concepts. So you could, you, could, uh, get that, you could talk to them at that, you know, that kind of a level, just the big ideas. Not the structure necessarily, and not the uh, you know the digital information system would probably be too complex of an idea to uh, talk to them about. But what it all means in in big terms is is real stuff. It's the real stuff of life. We all know about you know how our life is if we cooperate and if we care about others, and how our life is if it's all about us, and that it's it's better if we care about others, and it tends to get worse if it's just us in isolation and it's only about us. Then we're constantly on the defensive. You know, we're constantly struggling. We're constantly at war with the rest of the world. So those kinds of big picture things I think you could talk about. But when you try to explain it in detail about the, the lar- you know, the larger consciousness system and digital information, it's probably going to go over their heads. But if you say that same thing, very generally, such as, um, you know, we are all here for a purpose, you know, that sort of thing. People can understand words like that. So I think you have to be a little thoughtful about how you present it and that you present the, the core concepts rather than the structure. How could we make consciousness a career? Well, 
you should make consciousness a career. Everyone should make consciousness a career. It's just getting paid for it is the hard part. Yeah. So it should be something that's really every day. You know, your consciousness, that's what you are. So it's kind of your career whether you like it or not. It's just you can make more of it or less of it. Now, how do you actually work in it and get paid for it? Well, uh, a couple of ways. One would be to go into things like perception um, and uh, awareness. Physics is good because hopefully we're going to tie physics more uh, closely to virtual reality and consciousness here in the near future. So all of those things would, would help. Now, one of the things that you'll get from, say, a science like mathematics or physics is you'll get a, an, an ability to think analytically. That, those kinds of subjects train you in analytical thinking. You know, here's a problem. Make sense of the problem you know, and find a solution. That kind of analytical thinking, I think, is good in any in anything you do, that ability to think analytically. Now, that's very left brain, but that's an important part to make sense out of your world is to have that. So in that sense, you know, mathematics and physics are two really good things that will help you be able to see the world as it is and, and think about it analytically. Think about what you're doing and what, the, what, what, are, what am I doing and what are the consequences? See, that's analytical thinking. And if I change this, you know, how will that change the results? That's analytical thinking. That's the way, you know, science will teach you to think. I think that's very valuable. But at the same time, you should also be growing that left side of that right side of your brain holistically, seeing big pictures, not just seeing logical process, but seeing big pictures. And where you'll get that is in your interactions with others, in your relationships. You need to see people and the and the constraints on relationship and the potential in relationships in terms of big pictures it's not just about the words you say it's it's a lot more than that going on there so you need to be able to read between the lines to see you know what other people where other people are learn to put yourself in behind their eyeballs so you see their reality rather than just see your own reality Practice on being empathetic and connected to others so that you can tell another's reality. How do they see the world? You see, that's, in, that's an important part of it. So that sort of thing is, is, is not left-brained. It's intuitive, but that's not something you're going to learn in school. Even if you go into psychology, it's going to be left-brained. You're going to be learning a lot of terms and things and causal reactions, and it tends to be mostly left-brained. So the right brain stuff, you just have to pick up on your own by being aware, by being able to connect to that larger system and, and be empathetic with people, feel their feelings, you see, see, their, see where they're coming from, live their life a little bit, put yourself in there to where you're not just seeing them from the outside like they're a character in a movie, but you actually can be them for short periods of time. That sort of thing will help develop your right brain, your ability to connect with things, see things holistically in big pictures. And that is just as important as learning how to do logical process.
but I don't know of any course of study or any job that will particularly develop your right brain. I think that's just something you have to do in your day-to-day life by being aware of what's going on around you, living in the moment, seeing the big picture, feeling the feelings, picking up the energy, that sort of thing. That is an important part of it as well. If you just walk around inside your head and it's you in here and then everybody else out there, then that won't help you develop your right brain. You have to see yourself as a part, an organic part of something bigger. It's not just I'm in here, the rest of the world's out there, but I'm a part of this rest of the world. I affect the rest of the world. The rest of the world affects me. I'd like to see that and understand that more. You see, that kind of an intent, then that's a very important thing to do as well. And that will develop out of your becoming love, out of your caring. Um, Those kinds of abilities will start to uh, evolve. And at that point, you will be able to hear people thinking often. You will be able to have a, a telepathic connection with people. You will have an empathetic relationship with people. You will find a lot more compassion is developing in your personality. So that's two different ways of growing. One's the learn how to do the intellectual, you know, logical process, because that's important. We need that. Otherwise, we, we kind of are only in the holistic world, and we can't see how to take the next step. But don't let that be your only approach. Develop your, your right brain as well. What you'd like to end up is extremely right-brained and extremely left-brained both at the same time, which brings a a balance that makes you very good at both. But you won't get to either one without a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of effort to uh, go either place. And how you get paid for that in the meantime, that's hard to tell. That's, uh, That's hard to say. But find something that you do that you don't mind doing. Try to find some line of work or something that you find interesting, that isn't boring. Um, something that uh, you can focus on because you'll get so much more out of it if you can get into it than if you're just turning a crank because it creates a paycheck. Yeah, one thing that um, I've been running into, well, we all actually have been running into, is that, you know, we're living here, and we know, you know, like, we can heal, we can go to all these places and stuff, and we're just washing dishes, we're mopping floors, and it's fun, like, honestly, I kind of like washing dishes, but maybe not five days in a row, you know, and it's (laughs) so, like, so kind of... You know, it's as if everyone is kind of walking with, like, blinders on, and you're like, hey, hey, look, we can make this so much better. And they're like, where's What are you? Don't talk to me. Don't look at me. You're crazy. You know, like, kind of almost as if you have to paint a facade of some sort for them to use. And, yeah, it's kind of the... (laughs) Sometimes you do. Sometimes you have to understand that... uh, you have to, you know, work in ways that you can interact with other people, but you can't 
you know, you, you can't expect them to understand where you are uh, very easily. And you have to accept them the way they are. You have to not think of them as being uh, zombies or, uh, you know, stupid or something like that, because that's not helpful either. That just runs to your own ego. You have to realize they are who they are, and you have to interact with them in a way that they can understand, that they can process. So you can't tell everybody just anything because they won't get it. If you're going to communicate, you've got to talk to people in a way that they can get it at their level, their terms. But meanwhile, if what you're stuck doing because you can't find anything any better to do is mopping floors and washing dishes, well, then make a meditation out of it. You know, be, uh, you know get, into, get into your dishwashing and your floor mopping and do the most exquisite job of that it, that is very efficient and just take some pleasure in that you're doing something that needs to be done. You know, so don't uh, feel like it's a, a terrible thing, you know, that's wasting your time. And you will meet people from time to time, and you won't always be washing dishes and scrubbing floors. Things will change. You will uh, gain skills. You will find, uh, you know, better jobs to do. But you just have to live through the opportunities you have. Right now, maybe that's the only opportunity you have to make some money is to wash dishes. Uh, that won't always be the case. But while it is the case, do it well. You know, like I say, make a meditation out of it. Do be in the moment with it and be aware of how, of what all is going on around you. Because when you're doing this, there's other people around you. There's other things going on. And be aware of those people. And the more aware you are of them and their reality, the more you'll be able to interact with them in a way that's positive. You see, and by interacting by a way that's positive, I mean that you can interact with them and you, you go to where they are to interact. Don't expect them to come where you are to interact. You know, you're here. You have this understanding. They're not going to come to you where you are because that's too big a step for them. So you have to go to where they are and interact with them at that level as much as you can. And if you can't, if it's just you just can't do that, well, then they're just another person in this world that, you know, you pass by in the night and you don't interact with them. You know, because some people are just hard to interact with. Some people just aren't nice, and you don't want to interact with them, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. So get the, make the most out of whatever you have and always uh, do things well. And as you do things well, it's so hard to find people who care about what they do and who actually can, make, can solve problems as they go. Don't have to be told, now do this, now do that, now do it this way, do it that way. They have the initiative to look and see what needs to be done and just do it. And those people are so rare that even if you start washing dishes and scrubbing floors, if you do that kind of work, it'll be noticed. And pretty soon, whoever you work for is going to want you to do more and take on more responsibility because finding people who care about what they do and do good quality work and can solve problems as they go, you don't run into those very often. And when you do, you don't keep them washing dishes. You move them up. <laughs> so whatever you do, you see, that's why I say do it well, and it'll be a first step to the next step, which is a step to the next step after that. So your life will always be good if you have the right attitude. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yes. Okay, further questions? Nicholas, from your end, anything? Nothing? 
I'll accept no, not that. right now. Well, if there are no further questions, then uh, I would say this wraps up the first Youth Fireside Chat, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Thank you guys for coming. I appreciate it. It's nice to see such young people involved in uh, these concepts. It's terrific. So I'm glad to do this. We'll have to do it again sometime. If uh, you like, maybe we'll be yeah. able to recruit, recruit a few more by then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then thanks, everybody, for coming. It was great. Thank you, Oliver, for putting this all together. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it was great. And, Tom, you actually made it to answer the questions succinctly and shortly. I think that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks. Thanks for coming, Ash. Thanks for to Nicholas, and thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, well, if that's it, then uh, I'm out of here, guys, and uh, maybe we do this again. Maybe, Oliver, uh, you'll pull us all together again and add a few new people. This has been fun. Sure, we'll put it out, and maybe when other teenagers see it and say, I want to be part of it, then we'll have a part two. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, that would be the best. So long, guys. Okay. Bye, Bye, Tom.